morning. That was my bad. I probably turned that on too early. Uh, my name's Chris, and I am the pastor here at City Church, and um, I am really excited for this morning because uh, this weekend I have two of my best friends in the world in, and so um, I used to live in Las Vegas and got to serve at a church with uh, the guy playing the little box drum right there, Cajon, and uh, this guy, Rich. And one thing about these guys is um, they are some of the most passionate people I've ever met in pursuing Jesus. And it's been so good for my soul to have friends that are so radically dedicated to following Jesus. Also, you should know, and this is, I think, useful to you as a church, they have no problem telling me when I'm wrong. (laughs) They have no problem correcting me. Uh, they have, like, full authority into speaking into my life. And uh, in Vegas, we had quite a few of those instances with my friend Rich, who um, I became the pastor of the church, so I was his boss, but also he was my assigned mentor, which made for so many really wonderful conversations. And uh, so Rich, uh, today's a special day. I'll let him share the number if he wants, but today's actually Rich's birthday. So can we just wish him a happy birthday? Thank you. Okay. Um, And so Rich has been a missionary for like 30 years, and I wanted to just lean into a little bit of his expertise on what's going on in the world. Uh, Obviously, we know some things that are going on, but uh, what is God doing in the earth? Um, What are we seeing? Because he's been so many places, been with a wonderful missions agency. I also wanted him to do this whole interview in a British accent, so I'm going to ask him to do that as well. Um, So, Rich, tell us a little bit about who you are first, and then I want to ask what's going on in the world. Okay, I don't know if I can sustain the British accent for that long. No, I actually am from England originally, um, from Liverpool, England, and uh, been with uh, Youth of the Mission, YWAM, for 36 years this year. Sorry, And um, uh, very honored to do that. Uh, I have lots of stuff to share with you, so I'm going to actually stop his message and just go for it. Um, He doesn't know this, but no, seriously though, guys, first of all, I want to say... Uh, I really want to let you know, so, and honestly, he doesn't know I'm going to say this. <laughs> He's I really nervous right mistake. now. He's really <laughs> nervous. Um, but no, seriously, I want you to know how blessed you are to have such a wonderful pastor and his wife. Seriously. You guys are seriously blessed. And he is a wonderful man of integrity. And so is Catherine, a wonderful woman of integrity. And um, honestly, uh, his passion and his love for the Lord are wonderful. And I just want to fully say, you guys are fully blessed. And uh, just wait. I, I feel like God is going to do amazing things here um, through, through Chris and Catherine, but also through all of you together as you partner together. Secondly, I want to say, I've, I, he never showed me the sanctuary until this morning. And actually, the whole building, we were here last night doing a Come Holy Spirit event downstairs, saw that, and that was, that's pretty impressive. But actually, so I've worked in cities and city ministry for many, many, many years, 25, 20, almost 30 years, probably almost the full 36 years I've been in cities, actually. And I love cities. And, you know, the view from Chris and Catherine's mansion, I mean, house, I'm joking. It was a joke. Sorry, it was a total joke. That was a joke. They don't. They live in a very normal, humble home. I'm sorry. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah, that was a joke. Hey, um, that's actually our time. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. They, they live in a, just with a house with a beautiful view on the hill over the city. 
and just woke up this morning. You guys live in a beautiful city. Mm, and yeah. I know what it's like. I mean, I live in Hawaii now. And I'm like, oh, we live in Hawaii. Oh, you know, honestly, Hawaii is really deathly boring. I just want you to know that. You wake up every morning and go, oh, Pacific Ocean. No, I'm joking. But anyway, so no, honestly, I'd rather have the view here. What you guys have and living in the city is such an incredible opportunity. You guys, you know that in the Bible, we started in a garden, but we're going to end up in a city. Amen. And God loves cities. And you have an incredible opportunity. But guys, this church building is unbelievable. Mm. The opportunities that you have here with just the gym alone and this, the way it's so well kept to affect the community Guys, you have an incredible opportunity set before you to partner and do amazing things in the city and to truly bring the gospel and bring transformation to the city of Cincinnati. Right here, it starts obviously in over the Rhine area, um, on the Rhine area, but, but, but guys, it's amazing what opportunities God has given you to be here. And uh, I just want to you know, truly encourage you this morning to really go for it. I mean, Wow. Wow, it is beautiful and uh, amazing opportunities mm. that you guys have here. So, so that's that. Okay, now to what I was going to say. Oh, time's up. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, so basically, I know Chris wanted me to talk a little bit about the world and what's going on. Um, so I've been in a missionary organization, been a missionary for 36 years, and um, just what's going on in the world. Guys, we, we live in unprecedented times. We live in times of great opportunities. We actually have, um, so let me see, 20 years ago, there was this group that, that happened to meet um, about strategic missions around the world. And at that point, there was um, 88 unreached, unengaged people groups in the world. People that had never heard the gospel, people that never would have an opportunity because nobody would go to them. Nobody would go to them. And there was 88 left. And in the last 20 years, there's only, now there's only one left. Wow. Um, that's actually unengaged. Now, they're still unreached. There are still 3.1 billion people on the planet that have never heard the name of Jesus and will never have the opportunity to hear the name of Jesus unless somebody goes to them. You go, well, why can't they just get on the Internet? I mean, don't they all have computers? Um, so, <laughs> no, they don't. And also, even if they do, and lots of them do have phones, which have Internet access, they never have an idea of, oh, I should look up Jesus. You know, they, it's just... No, nobody would ever think like that. So they have to have somebody to go to them to literally go, let me, I've come here to talk to you about Jesus. And even then, then they, you know, they can send them to resources online and other things like that. And so I'm very much involved in stuff where we're training young people, particularly young people, but anybody can go to the nations and just really training them to send people to go. And um, I have that great privilege. But, but we live in unprecedented times. The Bible will be available in every heart language in some form within the next 10 years. Come on. Never happened in, in the history of the planet. And guys, the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible it has the answers that everybody seeks. There is no other book like the Bible in all of human history. And we might just take it for granted and go, oh, it's the Bible, whatever. Honestly, guys, it transforms lives and transforms nations. Amen. And it will be available in every language within the next 10 years as we work diligently to, you know, with translation techniques and so on as technology has improved. So we have incredible, unprecedented times set ahead of us, but we all need to be engaged. And you guys can be engaged and start here. 
That's what's so wonderful, is that in all of time and space, God has this great plan, and you get to be here at this time, in this location, to bring the kingdom right here, right now, and begin to start right now. And so it's a great opportunity to do that. Um, and so it is such an honor to be with you this morning, uh, just even to share what God's doing. We're going to end in a moment. Obviously, maybe some of you are really concerned about what's happening with Ukraine and, and Russia. Obviously, that's, that's really sad. It's the largest, you know, troop movement and actual conflict that's taken place in Europe since World War II. Now, there have been equally larger, larger, actually, offensives. For example, the Russians moving into Afghanistan in 1989 was a much larger offensive than what's happening right now. It's just it's never happened in Europe since, since 19, 1930s, 1940s. And so it is a bit you know, disconcerting, obviously. But guys, we're going to pray, and we're going to pray that God will move and use this as an opportunity. War is a horrible thing, and it's never on God's heart. But at the same time, God will use it for his plans and his purposes. He can redeem, and we need to pray that God will redeem what, what is happening in the world in Ukraine and in Russia. Um, you know, the Russians, that they would cry out to God and understand the evils that are going on, but also, obviously, the evils that are happening to the Ukrainians. And we also, you know, Jesus commanded us to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute you. And so we're going to pray for both in a second. But um, was there anything else that you really wanted me to share, Chris? I mean, you just, you just landed from Turkey like two days ago. Anything you want to share about what God is doing there? Yes, Turkey, guys. Just to give an example, Turkey. So there are um, the five largest unreached people groups in the world. Um, there are, these are unreached peoples. They've never had the gospel. They um, have... There's a very, very small percentage, just to give you an idea, because we think, oh, you know, surely people can have access to the gospel. Um, let me tell you about Turkey. 80 million people. Who's been to Turkey here? Anybody? Okay, good. So now I, I'm, I'm going to have to tell you the truth. Okay, good. I can't just make it up. Yeah, there are dinosaurs walking the streets. It's a no, no, no. No. Um, so 80 million people. Guess how many believers there are in the country? Somewhere between five to 11,000. That's all in the whole country, 80 million people. If you can imagine that, and these are, you know, it's very, very tough for people to really follow Jesus there and for them to share the gospel. Um, and it's, Turkey's on the verge of potentially closing up again. So we have to be super strategic and move in as quickly as possible and do, you know, again, bring the gospel there. And we have several teams. I was visiting a brand new team that just moved there in a section of Istanbul where we've never had a work there. Um, and so uh, there's great opportunities, though. They're beautiful people. It's a beautiful country. If you ever want to go, you should go. It's absolutely gorgeous. But apart from that, um, these people are lovely people, and they need Jesus. Yeah. They need Jesus. He's the hope of the world, as you know, in your own lives. And they will never get to hear unless people go and draw attention to Jesus and say, you need to see, check out who Jesus really is. Otherwise, they would never do that because they just grow up in that culture and think Islam is the way. So, so guys, uh, great opportunities yeah. around yeah, the world. I think um, I would love for us to just pray. Let's if you do that. Lead us in that. So let's, let's pray for, for Ukraine and for Russia right now. We'll just end our time. Guys, God is always concerned for the world. He's concerned for Cincinnati. And this is what's amazing. He's concerned for your individual lives. You know, some of you may be struggling thinking, how am I going to pay bills in a few days' time? 
you know, how am I going to do that? And God is concerned for you in your situation. He's concerned for Cincinnati. He's concerned for America. And he's concerned for all the nations. And only God is big enough to care for all of these things and hold all of these things in his hands. But he is able to do it more than able. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord. You love Ukraine, Lord. You love the people of Ukraine. Lord, you really do. But you also love the people of Russia. Lord, you even love Vladimir Putin. Lord, you love him. Lord, we pray for Vladimir Putin today. Would you please reach this guy, Lord? Reach him, Lord, with your truth, with your love. Would you have mercy on him, Lord, and reveal your truth to him? Lord, we pray for the people of Ukraine right now, God, who are those that are being oppressed and being invaded. Lord, would you help them, Lord, stories that are just heart-wrenching just to see on the news and on social media. Lord, would you please move? Would you please move the people of Ukraine, Lord? Would you redeem them? And Lord, we pray for the people of Russia, Lord. Let them see the emptiness that even comes from their leadership and from their nation, that they need Jesus, that they need a God who is bigger, Mm. bigger than just what Russia can do or what the government can do. Lord, you are great. You are God. There is nobody apart from you. The nations are like a drop in the bucket to you. And yet, Lord, you love and care for each one individually and the nations. Lord, we pray today for Ukraine. Save them, Lord. We pray that your will would be done. Stop this conflict in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we pray for Russia, Lord, that you would speak to them and bring repentance to them as well, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you so much, Lord, that your love is so far-reaching. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Rich. Thank you. Um, Can we thank Rich? A man that... He, uh, he could be doing so many other things, and he chooses to give, uh, give up his life specifically for young people reaching the nations, which is just incredibly selfless and um, definitely a friend but also a mentor of mine. And so, so thankful for you, and happy birthday. Um, this morning, uh, I, so this week, actually, I, was, um, I went to Las Vegas for like 36 hours, uh, an incredibly inconvenient time, so much to do here. Um, but I, I sit on the board of YWAM Las Vegas, which was actually started by our own Richard Thompson um, like 25 years ago. And uh, so I'm on that board. We had our one annual board meeting there. I used to live in Vegas. And while I was there, uh, one, we had like a big transition service and uh, because we were switching from one executive director to another. And we had this big uh, dinner at the end and... Um, I, uh, I closed out the night, and one of my friends came up right after and was like, you know what, there is such a, um, and let me get to the end of the story, this is not me bragging, but he said, there's such a maturity on you um, that you, that wasn't quite here uh, four years ago, like there's a presence, there's a peace about you, it feels like you've really matured in a lot of ways, and I was like, oh, Brett, thank you so much, um, and it really meant a lot, like he's a guy that I also look up to. And uh, like two minutes later, another one of my friends, Jeremiah, came up to me and was like, dang, church planting has really aged you. (laughs) He's like, you look a lot older than when you used to live here. And um, I'm getting a little bit of like echo. Is there anything we can scoot back? You just want me out of the camera? Uh, And uh, so what I fear is that uh, both of them are true. Um, that I, I looked at pictures back when I did live in Las Vegas. Turns out Jeremiah's right. Uh, I, I do look a little older, which is a bummer. 
Um, but it was so good to be back there, even to be reminded of um, all of the, the cool things, the ways that especially Catherine and I reformed early on in our marriage and in ministry. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But it uh, brought to an awareness, uh, in, at least in my life. So I uh, got wisdom, we got wisdom when we started this church that uh, every year you should take uh, a couple weeks off uh, in a row to think about, like, to work on the church, not in the church, and also to remind yourself that you're not that important, and the church doesn't hinge on you, and um, I really love that idea. I love the idea, and and I I feel like, I hope I don't need it, but I do want to continually remind myself, this church does not hinge on me. This church uh, is just one small iteration of a global movement that started 2,000 years ago that cannot be stopped, that will not be stopped until Jesus comes back, and we get to play such a unique um, role in that, but uh, I, it's good for me, and I did this last year, and I'm going to do it a week from today, so I'm going to preach a week from today, and then I just want to let you guys know I'm leaving for a couple weeks. Catherine and I are going to visit her family. We're going to be out of town, and so first of all, thanks for letting me do that. Second of all, I know not all of you were consulted on that decision. <laughs> I want to be aware of that. But third of all, I want to tell you, this has been, especially the last eight months, um, have just been a really uh, busy, difficult time. It feels like there's been one crisis after another, and Rich walked in and reminded me how one crisis of getting moved out of our building uh, was so awful. I mean, really, like, took a toll on me, but God's been faithful, and just the amazing uh, miracle that this place is. And so, just wanted to let you guys know, um, I, I am not burnt out. But I am tired, and I'm so looking forward to a couple weeks off. And I, I feel like, at least if you call this place home, it's in your best interest that I never get close to burnout. And so just wanted you to be aware that's something we really want to take serious here is um, that we want to, like, run hard after the Lord. Also, we really believe in rest, and we believe that the church does not hinge on any one man except for Jesus. And so um, I'll preach a week from today, and then... Text me if you really need me. Otherwise, I will be in Puerto Rico because I love that I have a sister-in-law that lives there, which is amazing. (laughs) All right, this morning, Acts 26. um, We are going to be uh, in Acts 26. Last week, I was in Acts 22. So Acts 22, Acts 26. Uh, What happens in between here is Paul gets arrested right outside the temple, and then uh, he gets put on trial in the Sanhedrin, so kind of the Jewish leadership uh, of that time. There's a plot to kill him. It doesn't happen. Uh, He gets transferred because Jerusalem is just a really dangerous place for him. He actually gets transferred by the Romans into a place called Caesarea. So he's in Caesarea in Acts 24. He goes on trial uh, uh, before kind of a Roman governor named Felix. Felix, who is relatively um, unschooled in Jewish religion, Jewish customs, has no idea what to do with him. He basically says, this is above my pay grade. I don't see why you're in jail. Also, I'm a little fearful of what the Jews would do if I let you go. And so we see Felix basically do nothing for about two years. And uh, for two years, Paul sits in jail in Caesarea. Finally, someone named Festus takes over uh, for the guy named Felix. He puts Paul on trial. Festus also doesn't really know what to do with him. And in the midst of his trial, Paul um, is on trial in this big amphitheater in Caesarea, And uh, he says, you know what, I appeal to Caesar. And this is going to be important later, but he says, I appeal to Caesar. And he, um, it's the right of every Roman citizen at that time, where you can say, look, I don't don't really want to go on, I I don't believe in what's happening here, I don't think you have my best interest, or I just want to go straight to the top. And we're going to do a little bit more work on why we think that is. Why would Paul um, actually 
uh, appeal to Caesar, was it actually in his best interest of getting out of jail, or was there something else going on? And so right now, this is right before, Acts 26 is right before Paul gets taken to Rome to go on trial uh, in front of Caesar, and he's standing before a guy named Agrippa. And if you've read through the Gospels, maybe you remember Herod, Herod the Great, or um, the Herod that uh, put John the Baptist in jail. This is Herod the Great's great-grandson. Sorry, great-great-grandson. And um, so this guy is kind of like the Jewish puppet king. He's you know, kind of uh, close with Rome, but he's technically a Jew. And so this is a really, really influential person at that time. And so Paul, uh, in Acts 26, gives his testimony one more time to Agrippa and his sister Bernice, which they think also could have been lovers, but that's not the point of this morning. Uh, Agrippa, Bernice, Festus, and a bunch of really influential people at Caesarea. And so in Acts 26, um, uh, 1 through 3, it says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are so well acquainted with the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And Paul says, um, I beg you to listen to me patiently because likely this was not, if you read Acts 26, it takes you about eight minutes, uh, this was likely about a two to three hour speech. This was kind of the norm that would happen in both Roman and even uh, Jewish culture. This was likely a long, drawn-out speech of which Luke says, here's the summary of what Paul is talking about. Here's kind of the summary update of the the testimony that Paul gives. It doesn't do anything to inspiration um, of the Bible, but Luke says, here's basically what Paul shares. And so he goes on for about two to three hours, and here's essentially what Paul says, because it's a bunch of influential Jewish people. He says, look, you guys know me. And he did the exact same thing last week, right, in Acts 22. He says, you know me. Like, I, you know, I was discipled by this guy. I went to this school. I'm from this tribe. I was uh, raised in Jerusalem. I was born in this city. What Paul basically says in Acts 26, because we're not going to read the whole thing. You can feel free to read it um, in the Bible in your pew right now. But basically what he says is, you know me. You need to be asking the question, what changed me? He said, look, you under, like, you're a zealous group of Jewish people. Like, I get it. I was more zealous. There's something. You know who I am. You know what I'm about. Yet you need to be asking the question, what changed me? And if, as you read through Acts 26, here's the two things we're going to pull out of it. One, it looks almost identical to Acts 22. And we're going to get to that in a second. But the second thing from Acts 26 is as you read through it, it becomes very apparent that Paul's primary objective is not actually making a good defense, but sharing the gospel with those that he's in the amphitheater with. It re- as you read it, he could do a better job of trying to get out of jail, but it seems like his primary objective is he's actually just trying to share the gospel. He's trying to influence Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and all the other influential men and women of the city. He's trying to influence them towards belief and viability of Jesus, which begs the question why. Why would Paul do that? Because the most self-serving thing he could have done is to try to make a good defense to get out of jail, yet he was doing something different. And the reason is because Paul had a calling. Paul had a purpose. He had a vision. He had one very specific thing that he knew he was supposed to do. It comes from Acts 9, which is like 17 chapters before or nine months in city church time, if you remember, if you were around when we preached through Acts 9. But this is Paul's um, coming to the Lord. It's when Paul gets saved. 
And in Acts 9.15, we rarely read this part, or we rarely highlight this part of that verse. But it says, The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man, Paul, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And usually when we hear about Paul, we think about he was the missionary to the Gentiles, but he wasn't just the missionary to the Gentiles. Part of his call was to influence their kings, to influence those that had influence. That was the primary call around Paul's life is to reach those that are not really in the people of God and the influencers that are among the people of God. It's actually one of the callings as we were praying about this church years ago. One of the phrases that we got is we wanted to help influence those who have influence in the city. Rich is right that we can like actually have an impact in the city, but a couple of the strategic things that as we're a new church starting out, we want to, one, be in the heart of the thing. Like We want to be right in the middle of where things are happening, and we feel a specific call to influence the city through not just uh, anyone, but we want to also affect those that have influence in the city. We want to influence the, the artists of the city and the educators and the people on city council and the business leaders. We want to influence the boardrooms of Procter & Gamble, and we have to be faithful to the call of serving the poor that the Bible lays out. And so an effective church is not just one that reaches the, the rich or the poor, but an effective church is one that reaches both. And so Paul's call and part of our call is to influence those that have influence because we will never see a city changed if we're not hitting both categories of the city. And so Paul's call was to not just serve the Gentiles, but to serve the Gentiles and their kings. And in Acts 25, right before we read uh, verses 1 through 3 in Acts 26, it says that that room, the amphitheater in Caesarea, was filled with high-ranking military officers and prominent men in the city. Actually, most scholars believe this is why Paul appealed to Caesar. The Caesar, or the emperor at the time, was a guy named Nero. And if you know anything about Roman history, this was not a guy that was friendly to Christians. He uh, like went on a rampage at one point and killed, tried to kill all of the Christians. And so Paul does not make a good strategic move by appealing to him, except Paul had a calling. He knew, and he was at the height of his ministry right now, as he's sitting in an amphitheater full of prominent leaders in the city, and that's the reason that he appealed to Caesar, not because that was the best chance of getting out of jail, but because that was the one thing that Paul was absolutely fixated on. This is the thing that Jesus has asked me to do, and he knew it was going to cost him something, and it was still so worth it to him. And so uh, briefly this morning, I want to talk about calling. And I really, I, I read Acts 26, I'm like, man, this is identical to Acts 22. Um, there's a couple things that Paul obviously is doing. One of them is he's living out his calling. And there are so many Christian thoughts and resources and ideas about calling that I was like, I don't really want to touch that. Um, there's so many thoughts. It's such a like almost kind of a buzzword or uh, especially in Christian culture right now. It's like, what's your calling? What's your purpose? And so I do feel like I want to briefly touch on that um, because I think that it actually causes a lot of anxiety or strife rather than freedom. And uh, so calling uh, on a macro sense, we all have the same calling. It comes from Genesis 1, we're to be image bearers of Jesus. Uh, sorry, image bearers of our creator, image bearers of God. And so at a macro level, I know your calling, I know my calling. We're all trying to figure out how do we best reflect how do we best give glory to the creator of the world? So we all have the same calling. And then when it gets specific is, okay, now what can you, specifically with your talents, 
your opportunities, your passions, how can you best reflect the image of God? Because no one person is going to do it. But what we all can do is kind of hit different angles of how we can reflect the beautiful creator that put us here. And so when we get into specific calling, it's asking the question, what are my passions and my purpose? How, how do I reflect the image of God specifically with me? And, and so this idea of calling is a big idea. I want to hit just a couple practical things that I've seen specifically in like the Christian world around calling. I'm not incredibly old. I also apparently am not incredibly young. Here's some things that I've witnessed is, uh, first of all, your calling is rarely clarified in your 20s. And so if you're uh, in your 20s, that should bring a collective sigh of relief. If you're in your 30s, and, and there really is no cutoff on age, but there is this obsession, especially with young people, about finding out exactly what their calling is. And I can't do anything else until I figure out what my specific purpose is. And, uh, and we, my generation, the millennials, are the very first generation to have a quarter-life crisis. It's, I mean, it's like an actual anomaly. Thank you, older people. You guys have mastered the midlife crisis. We are pioneering the quarter-life crisis in part because of technology and social media, also because we've seen everybody else effectively living out their calling, or at least it seems like they are on Instagram. And there's this almost anxiety, Christian anxiety in us that's like, I must not have found mine. And so the first thing I've just witnessed, if you disagree, that's fine, but it seems like your calling is rarely like solidified as a young person, specifically in your 20s, maybe even in your 30s. And that should actually bring freedom, not anxiety. If you're in your 20s, try things out. Do different things. Figure out what you're good at. Get, figure out what you're passionate about. If you're 24 and you don't have it all figured out yet, that's okay. The temptation is to feel like you need to, but that's okay. Paul right now at Acts 26 is currently, and later he shares with Nero, Caesar, but currently is at the apex of his ministry. He's got the most influential audience that he's ever had before. And he's probably about 55 years old. He's 25 years into following Jesus. And he's just now hitting the apex. I mean, he's planted churches and he's done incredible things. But if he's called to the kings, not just to the Gentiles, but the kings, this is one of the apexes of his ministry and he's 55 years old. It's okay. If you haven't figured yours out, if you're 55, if you're 60, it's okay that you haven't figured it out. The calling of Jesus on your life should bring freedom, not anxiety. It should bring some kind of relief, not this strife to be as good as the next person next to you or the Christian next door or what you see on the Christian influencer's Instagram page. Paul's 55 and he's finally living out one of the callings that God had on his life. Also, your calling might be hard. Uh, I think sometimes we imagine that if it's my calling, it's going to be really fun and easy. And Paul both is living at the apex of his, and he's in jail. And that's often what we forget. At the height of Paul's influence, he also is in jail. If there's any point that's higher than this, it's when he actually shares before Caesar, and that's also the thing that gets him killed. And so sometimes our calling, although it should be fulfilling, it also seems, at least like biblically, that sometimes it's going to cost you something. It's going to be somewhat hard. And, and this is not an equation, but this is, as I've kind of studied and thought and prayed about this, it seems like uh, this is where your calling is. It's at the intersection of what your passions are and your talents are and your opportunities. 
Your calling um, probably can be found somewhere in the intersection of your passion, your talent, and your opportunities. And it usually has to be all three. Uh, I have a deep, deep passion for worship. I love worship more than, uh, probably more than most worship leaders. I also have a great opportunity. Every week, somebody gives me a microphone. What I'm lacking is talent. Don't underestimate that. I have a great passion for worship. I have an opportunity to lead it every week if I wanted to, or at least one week before the microphone gets taken away. I have no talent. So don't forget that actually God has gifted you to do something, and usually your passion will be right in line with something that you're good at, not just passionate about. We want to see those overlap, and don't get so fixated on finding those two things that you forget to actually still engage with other things. Where are the opportunities in your life? Where is God already opening up doors? We don't want to be so fixated on one thing that we forget to do anything, especially that's the struggle with younger believers is we see everybody living out their God-given calling and we feel the need to only do that one thing and forget that it's okay to clock in and clock out for a few years. It's okay to go through a little bit of the grind to even figure out what you're good at and what you're passionate about. Um, part of, and I still feel like I'm working this out, so this is like, I, uh, I think I have a direction I don't quite know exactly what my calling, what my purpose, if there's a phrase or a, a task that I'm supposed to do. Um, but I do know it got clarified about six years ago. Uh, Catherine and I, at the end of every year, we go on a marriage retreat and we pray about how we want to spend our money and our goals and uh, what we want to do this year and some of the macro things that we're looking at. And also, about six years ago, we drove to Phoenix from Vegas, not from here. That'd be terrible. Uh, still be married, hopefully, at the end, but uh, we decided, hey, let's ask the Lord, what is the purpose of this marriage? What's the purpose of our life? And we got three big phrases. We got um, that we're supposed to be pursuers of the presence. And so for being an accounting major and a finance major, I know we're a blast at parties. Also, being very type A, we uh, have this great passion for the presence of God. And, and it continues to grow despite maybe our personality or what you would think about, um, you know, people that went to business school. We love just sitting in the presence of God, and we want to continue to cultivate that. We uh, heard that we're supposed to be radical lovers of the lost. And then the final one that kind of moved us into this place is we felt like the Lord said that we're supposed to be a father and a mother to a family on mission. And it's why I love the phrase so much. We felt like the Lord said uh, that we're supposed to be a father and a mother to a family on mission. And it was in that moment for me, and there's all kinds of people that had prayed about this church in a dorm room in Indiana University to all over the country to an apartment in Las Vegas. And, uh, but for me, my story, a whole team planted this church, but for my story, planting a church and becoming a pastor went from something that I could do. I got the skill set, I think, I, I could do this, to something that I almost felt like I had to do. It was in that moment that I felt like the Lord said, a father to a family on mission, that planting a church, being a pastor, helping steward one of the moves of God in his church is uh, something that I, it went from something I could do to something that I almost felt like I have to do. And that's a little bit of an indication of where calling is. Your calling often moves you from something that you could do to something that you almost feel like you have to do. Like this is what I'm supposed to do. And again, calling will cost you something. And our culture is obsessed with calling. Our culture is obsessed with finding that one thing. Don't get so caught up 
and trying to find your one thing that we forget to do other things, that we forget to just engage in the world around us and continue to ask the Lord, Lord, where is this in me? Because Paul was fixated. Paul was at the very beginning of the most beautiful, messy, organic, wonderful institutions that's ever graced the planet. He was at the very beginning of starting a global movement that's called the church. We're just a little bit further down the line uh, as a part of this wonderful beauty or a beautiful, organic, messy institution called the church. And sometimes in order to find like where our part is in it, we every now and then, that's why I love missions, why, it's, why I love talking to Rich, every now and then we got to step back and say, man, what am I actually a part of? I want to know what my part is, but what am I actually a part of? Because the church is this unbelievable global movement that will not be stopped. It is so unbelievable that we get to be a part of Jesus's church. Uh, Acts 26 and Acts 22 in your Bibles are likely about two pages apart. Um, Last week I talked about it, so I know we all listen every week and we're all always here. So last week you heard Acts 22. It was seven days ago or maybe in your Bible it's two pages. The actual time difference between these two is about two years. There is two years difference between Acts 22 and Acts 26, yet they seem like they're almost identical. If you read through both of them, Paul shares almost the identical story in 22 and 26, which seems really strange because there were two years apart. Certainly he would have changed some details or forgotten parts of it unless Paul must have been preaching this story over and over again in between those two years. Paul was continually, he's in jail, so not a whole lot of people to talk to. Paul must have, because you read Acts 22, Acts 26, just the way memory works, Paul must have continually been preaching the gospel to himself. Paul was continually reminding himself of God's faithfulness. There's no way you stand before that kind of a crowd and you deliver that kind of a sermon unless this is just another day. I preached the gospel to myself yesterday. I reminded myself of God's faithfulness to, to my life yesterday. Today it's in an amphitheater. I'm ready to go. And the amazing thing about reading Acts 26 this week and reading Acts 22 last week is that they are almost identical because because Paul must have been preaching this over and over and over again. I want you to take a moment and just remember God's faithfulness in an instance in your life. Uh, Matt, a few months ago, preached on remembrance, and it was so good. The problem is we have to often remind ourselves to remember, and so I'm going to do it again this morning. I want to remind you to remind yourself the faithfulness of God's uh, move in your life. And so 15 seconds right now, I just want you to think of an instance in your life that you needed God or you needed comfort and God came through. We often see God when we are desperate for him. Theologically, God's not more active when we're desperate. God's always active. We're just looking for his activity more when we're desperate. And desperation is one of the keys to seeing God move. And prosperity, not just financial, but prosperity is one of the great enemies of desperation. It's when we feel like we've got enough, it's when we feel like things are going well that we often move out of desperation and into maintenance mode. And prosperity, it's why I believe Paul was so viciously telling his stories because he was desperate for a move of God. He was in jail. Prosperity, and not that we're anti-prosperity. 
We want to see ourselves thrive, but when we're in moments of thriving, when we're in moments of relative success, that's the moment that you're most tempted to move away from being desperate for God. Again, this week I was in Vegas. Uh, It was like the worst timing. Uh, I didn't plan the board meeting somehow as the president of the board. I don't know how I had no influence over this, but they planned the meeting, and I'm like, man, I've got friends coming in, and there's just a lot going on. So I spent 36 hours in Las Vegas, and I had to write a lot of this message uh, in a coffee shop. It's a really nice one called Einstein. And it was across the street from a restaurant called In-N-Out because I knew I had to eat there. But I was there, and I wrote this message, and I got through about this part, uh, you know, in that coffee shop, reading Acts 26. And I felt like the Lord, because I ask this question every time I preach, is, okay, God, here's what the text says. What does city church need to hear? And I started to pray, and I started to listen, and I felt like the Lord said this, to, to remember, to move into remembrance of who God is. And so um, before I wrote this next part, I felt like, and I had so much to do, and I'm so behind, and I felt like the Lord said, I want you to walk around UNLV. I want you to, because I, uh, for the first two years of living in Vegas, I wasn't in charge of a church. I wasn't even in charge of a college ministry. I was just helping with a college ministry. My basic job description was to, like, pray for people and share the gospel. Life was, and I remember that as just such a simple time. And I walked around UNLV, and I have some pictures of being there. And I just started to remember. I started to remind myself. At, outside that Starbucks, I remember when I bought someone's coffee, and they bought someone else's coffee, and they bought someone else's coffee, and two girls ended up giving their life to Jesus. I remember in that um, food court, we did an outreach. And at those tables are where I used to disciple uh, Jerwin and Stephen and David. At that outside uh, amphitheater, it's when, it's when we delivered a girl of, well, actually, we didn't successfully deliver some demons out of this girl, but where this girl started to manifest. And it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen at that point in the midst of a worship night. And she did get delivered like a couple months later, but we, um, we were doing a worship night in that amphitheater. And the presence of God fell where people just started to encounter God and also the enemy started to manifest as well. Uh, and then I walked by that boardroom. This is not really relevant to the sermon, but I walked by that, uh, it's the far bottom left, And I remember, oh, yeah, I've been in that room one time. It was the first time we ever did a college ministry thing. And uh, I was super nervous. I was like 25. I'd never spoken publicly before. And I wasn't in charge. My friend Graham was giving the message, but I was supposed to do announcements. And uh, and it was, I knew when I was supposed to go up. It was right after this song, right before that song. And the worship leader, Sarah, she was leading. And she starts to finish the one song. And so I go up with my microphone. And she has her eyes closed. And she goes immediately into the next song. And I I was standing there with a microphone. And she opens her eyes into the first verse. And she knew, and I knew, that I was there at the right time. Nobody else knew that. (laughs) What they knew is that I was standing up next to the worship leader with a microphone, not singing. (laughs) And I had two options. I could go sit back down and admit defeat, or I could power through. And I'm a fighter. So I powered through. And I stood there. And that was a charismatic song. That was a six- or seven-minute song, not a three-minute song. So I stood there. And I didn't sing, but I worship. You know, I probably gave a handhold or maybe even got up there. I was leading worship through motions, but I knew it would get worse if I turned the mic on. And I've never not made eye contact with a worship leader since then. There's so much power in remembering that you learn lessons from it. And so I'm walking around UNLV, and I'm like almost brought to tears because I'm remembering the faithfulness of God in my life. And here's what God is going to do. He's going to want you to remember. Here's what Satan's going to do. He's going to move you to forget. 
Satan's going to try to take those sacred moments of your life, and he's going to try to make them trivial. He wants to take those, you and, and I, as I'm walking around UNLV, I even hear a voice. I remember these middle schoolers got saved in that same amphitheater. And I felt like a voice said, I bet they're not following Jesus anymore. I don't know. But I know where the voice came from. He wanted to make that monumental thing in my life seem very trivial. I remember I walked through that food court, and it's like, man, you haven't talked to David or Stephen in a while. I doubt that they're still following Jesus. Where do you think that voice come from, comes from? He wants to take those sacred moments in your life, and he wants to make them trivial. Deuteronomy 4, it's a whole book about Moses basically saying this to the Israelites before they move into the promised land. He's saying, remember. Remember, Deuteronomy 4.9, it says, Only be careful and watch yourselves closely, so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Because Moses knew if you're not calling this to memory, they're quickly going to forget. Um, I have more, but actually, if the band could come up, um, we're just going to stop there. And we're going to ask the Lord, Lord, what do I need to remember? Lord, where do I need to remember? Because there was a moment in Acts 26 that Paul starts to talk about the core of his testimony. And he says in verse 8, why do you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul knew we've got to get back to the centrality of this story. And it's all about the resurrection. If you read 1 Corinthians, it's this long letter Paul writes to a church. And at the apex of the letter, the summary of the letter is chapter 15. And he says, look, here's what I'm going to pass on to you of first importance, that Christ rose from the dead. And so um, our calling is always going to be connected to the resurrection. We never graduate from the resurrection. The resurrection is Christianity 101. If you just got saved, you've got to have a central belief that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. But here's the other thing, is that the resurrection is Christianity 201. The resurrection is Christianity 301. And the central purpose of Acts 26, you can read it for yourself, is that Paul is sharing. Look, all of this hinges on the resurrection. And he's not just calling to mind his calling. He's not just trying to remember the things that God says in his life or did in his life. But he's mostly calling to mind and reminding himself of the resurrection. Because everything hinges on that. Everything hinges on that. And so if this is your first time hearing that, or for a lot of us, we've been following the Lord for 20 or 30 years. You've never, you never graduate past Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So, Father, we ask that you would call to mind the faithfulness that you've had. God, I need to be reminded, just like I was walking around UNLV this week, I need to be reminded of your faithfulness in my life. And God, never let us stray too far from you, crucified and resurrected. Let that be the centrality of what we believe and who we are. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As always, and we've said this the last couple weeks, this room is yours. Um, You can respond up front however you want. Sometimes we need to change our posture to symbolize a change in heart. Uh, Also, there's going to be people on the sides to pray, and uh, also the Lord's table is available in any.